Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. There's no doubt that work has changed. The way we work, the actual work we're doing, and the pace of the work that we're doing, just to name a few, and you could probably list your own set there as well. I think there are three significant trends that need to be in the foreground for every one of us, whether you're an employee or a leader. And those three um, are that humans are working with machines in new ways, that there is a whole host of models of what it means to be employed, and there's this rise of the thing called a super team, where we're working more in collaborative team environments than ever before. So I want to explore those three trends, and then I want to talk about the implications for the capabilities that each of us need to develop to thrive in that world. I want to talk about the implications for leadership and what leaders need to be doing or how they expand what they're currently doing. And I want to talk about the impact that all of that has on our culture. So with me today is Jeff Schwartz. And Jeff is uniquely qualified, I might argue, to to speak about this. He's a principal at Deloitte Consulting, and he's the U.S. leader for the future of work. He's also the U.S. leader for Deloitte Catalyst and Tel Aviv. And he was linking the Israeli startup ecosystem with their global clients. Um, Jeff advises senior business leaders at global companies on workforce transformation, on the organization, on HR, on talent, and on leadership. And he's been the global editor of Deloitte's Global Human Capital Trends Report that they've been publishing since 2011. Jeff has lived in and led consulting practices in multiple countries, including the United States, India, Belgium, Russia, and Kenya. Jeff, welcome to the show. Wanda, I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you for that very generous introduction today. Well, I think it doesn't do justice for what I think we're going to talk about. So, I always like to start at the very top, why? Why do you spend all this time and all this energy on work, work trends, work transformation? Well, it's a great question, and I, I've been very fortunate as a consulting partner for 25 years to be involved in a, a whole range of issues. Um, for many years, I led the, the talent practice, really built the talent practices across Deloitte, as you mentioned, got to do that, um, spent about half the last decade living in India, working with our global delivery teams and also with our biggest clients in uh, in India. And it's, it's interesting. I... Um, I think we realized, I realized probably about seven or eight years ago that that something was really happening around the topic that we now call the future of work and that uh, these changes were not incremental changes. Think of the frog in the, in the water as the temperature goes up. We can come back to that. And that what we were really seeing, and we're, we certainly saw it in 2020, were some fundamental shifts in work workforces and workplaces. And what I think it's very important right now for business and HR leaders and us as individuals and citizens to to really reflect on what these changes are and how to prepare ourselves for the next chapter in the in the future of work. And 
hopefully that's something we'll explore in the next few minutes. I hope so. I think it's a really important topic. I know most of the people listening to this, and certainly has my experience, that it does feel a little bit like frog in the pot of boiling water. In that, we've been talking about the future of work for the last five years. And the whole notion of digital is not a new concept to people by any stretch of the imagination. And we were on this journey. Um, I think COVID added a component to the journey. But I think we've underestimated what was actually happening in the background and how fast this was going to happen, COVID or not COVID. So I think it's fascinating. So there are four trends I really want to talk about. I named three at the beginning, but I want to talk about four. And what I'd love to hear you do is just talk about what you're seeing in each of those trends. So give me your insights, what you're seeing in your practice, what you're seeing in your research for each of the four trends. And then in the second half of the show, I'm going to come back and talk about the implications. So first trend I want to talk about is automation. Some might prefer the word artificial intelligence or IoT, Internet of Things, or even the human-machine interface. So what are you seeing, and what do you think is important in all of this? So let me, let me start here, um, and we'll, I'll talk about automation and human-machine collaboration. But also, let me set the table this way. This is something that you mentioned uh, just as we're getting started. Um, where are we in the future of work journey? And, and let me start with that, and then we'll, we'll go into automation. Um, sometimes I describe where we are in 2021 as we're thinking about 2022 and 2023 as um, I think of 2020 as the end of the beginning of the future of work. And as you've mentioned, uh, we've been exploring and experimenting with the future of work for not five years, I would say for about the last um, uh, 10 or 15, uh, 10 or 15 years. Um, and I think what's happened in 2020 is we've moved from the experimental phase, we've moved from the pilot phase into a phase where we really need to be doing this um, at scale and at speed, right? I think that's yeah. the shift that we have seen uh, in, the last, uh, in the last year. So scale and speed now have to be completely different. We're no longer in the experimenting phase. We're in the accelerate phase. We're in the accelerate phase. And we're in the phase where we, I think it's more than acceleration, right? We could have written, I've written a book called Work Disrupted. I think um, uh, I often joke that uh, the book is not titled Work Acceleration or Work Accelerated. Um, We've been going faster for a long time. Since Gordon Moore postulated Moore's Law in the 1960s, technology has been accelerating. Um, But what we've seen and what we all experienced in 2020, I I sometimes joke that uh, people sometimes ask me questions and they preface it by saying, Jeff, you're a futurist. What do you think is going to happen? And I'll give you my my perspectives. Um, But if we, everybody who lived through 2020 is a futurist now. Right? We have all experienced elements of the future in 2020, and they were shifts that occurred. Right? They, were, they were not simply going from uh, 5 miles an hour to 10 miles an hour to 15 miles an hour. What we experienced in 2020 was real exponential growth. Now, we use the word exponential. Um, another way of looking at it is we experienced 10x Right. And let me give some examples of 10x, and then I'll come on to automation. Um, at the beginning of 2020 in the United States, about 5% of the population was doing something that looked like telework. They were working from home. 
by May, that number was somewhere between 50 and 60%. Another way of looking at it is anybody who could work remotely did work remotely. And if you couldn't, you were working, I prefer to say, physically distanced, not socially distanced, because we, we don't want to be socially distanced, but we need to be physically distant and physically safe. 5% to 50%, 10x, that's an amazing shift that we went through, right? Another um, example, telemedicine. If you look at the numbers for telemedicine for the large systems in major cities and regions, again, of the U.S., a typical major system was doing a few hundred telemedicine visits a day. By the fall of last year, it was in the thousands. And in Asia and in China, where they were doing a lot of telemedicine before, it went from the tens and hundreds of thousands to the millions. Again, 10x. And then the most obvious one, somebody reminded me of this recently, is what we saw in drug discovery. If you literally Google or search how long it takes to create a new vaccine, it will tell you, it will show you a timeline of 10 years, right? And yet in the last year, um, we very, very fortunately have seen multiple companies around the world in different regions developing these vaccines in a year or less. We're in an age of 10x. So when I say speed and scale, we've experienced that speed and that scale. Let me come to the automation question specifically. Um, automation is one of the dominant narratives in the future of work. And it, it tends to, and often when I, uh, in the uh, pre-COVID days, when we used to meet with clients in an actual room at an auditorium, I would start with the question, what's your dominant image? What's your dominant narrative of the future of work? Is it the robot apocalypse? The robots are coming for our jobs? Or is it humanity unleashed? We imagine that all the work that we don't want to do that can be done safely by machines is done by machines. And, and most of us sort of enter the discussion of automation with some version of, of the robot apocalypse. My perspective on this, and I think what we're experiencing is a very interesting dynamic right now. Um, many people, both economists and, and, uh, and, uh, and columnists and public policy analysts have said things like, if a machine can do it, a machine will do it. We are seeing an increasingly large number of tasks within our jobs that can be done by machines which really leads us to the question, and the way that I would summarize it is, um, the advice I would give to a young person, any, somebody anywhere in their career is, expect that in your career, you will be working with and next to a smart machine and a robot. And then the question becomes, what are the things that machines can do really well, and what are the things that people can do really well? Mm -hmm. And so the challenge in, in a nutshell is how do we redesign and reimagine the way we talk about it is re-architect work for these new combinations of people and machines. And we can go into examples, how that's played out in retail banking with the invention of the ATM machine. Um, we can go into how it's the impact is having on medicine as radiologists are using AI. And, and what I refer to as what's the Renaissance version of work <laughs> where people work with technology um, to go farther and, and to actually do the things that people can uniquely do. There's um, one of my friends is a specialist in building and designing and developing robots. So it's been fascinating over the last number of years 
the conversations with him about the progression of the field of robotics and having hearing him special speculate what could we do and so a favorite dinner table conversation often was around well could a robot do this could a robot do that it's rather surprising what a robot could do like uh, it's you'd think there are many things that just aren't possible and actually they are quite possible and it then opens up the speculation of so if that's the case then how do we do the interface between me as a human being and the robot what does that look like in the future especially around work so fascinating okay um So that's one trend. Let's talk about the second trend, which is this notion that there are new models of work. Now, we've been talking about the notion of a gig economy for 15, I would even argue in some cases 20 years, that people are going to be more freelance workers. But you argue that it's way more than just the gig economy. It's a whole new set of models of employment. Tell me what you're seeing again. So we're we're seeing two things. It's uh, I, I mentioned uh, a minute ago that when we started doing this research in in 2013, one of the first articles that we wrote was on uh, what we describe as the open talent economy, um, which is really the continuum of the ways that people can be employed. We can be full time employees, part time employees. We can work for a third party as part of a managed services contract. We can be a freelance worker, a gig worker, a crowd worker. These are all different employment models, actually. Um, one of the things that uh, was really interesting in doing this research and uh, um, uh, was the, the insights that Lewis Hyman brought to me thinking about this. Lewis Hyman is a labor economist and a labor historian at Cornell's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Uh, he wrote a book called um, Temp, The History of Temporary Work in the US. He actually traces it back to the end of World War II and the growth of manpower services and temporary services. Um, and uh, I think his point is that the growth of the employment, these employment models really predate the, the talent platforms that um, have fueled some of the growth in the last few years. Um, the data that we're looking at, that I'm looking at shows that the percentage of people who in their life will spend some part of their life in what looks like a traditional job, a full-time job, and some part of their life working in one of these alternative models is extremely high. So my my recommendation is prepare to be a full-time worker and a gig worker and some combination of that throughout our lives. And and there are real challenges to how do we structure that work and how do we provide benefits so that that actually works um, uh, very well. And I think the, the challenge that we're seeing, and again, this was accelerated by COVID, is how do we bring autonomy and flexibility into these employment models, but give people the sense of security, the sense of development, the access to unemployment compensation, the access to, uh, in the United States, healthcare benefits and other benefits so that we can actually make work in any of these employment models um, uh, good, good ways of actually making a living. And I think that's the challenge we have now. I think um, it's going to proceed. But let me let me add one other comment to this. And this okay. comes from my discussion with Lewis. We, we asked Lewis a very similar question. And we asked him the kind of question you ask a, a leading researcher. Um, so what do you think the future of employment models is going to look like? And, and Lewis took a pause. And, and uh, we were doing it on Zoom so I could see his expression. And he said, 
you know, Jeff, it's not predetermined what it's going to look like. When we talk about the future of employment models or the future of automation or the future of working in person or, or uh, virtually, we have choices. We have choices on what these models will look like, and we have choices on how we will structure the, the social and the economic and the financial and the emotional <laughs> considerations as well. And, and I think that's a, a really important part of the discussion right now, which is as we have more options and we have more choices, what choices do we wanna make? And how do we wanna prepare different institutional arrangements? I'm an economist, that's how I talk. Right. But different arrangements so that regardless of what option you're pursuing at a particular point, that you can get the kind of support and the resources you need to be productive and to be safe. It's um, You certainly see this playing out, for example, in the U.S. and outside the U.S. as well in Uber's contract arrangement with their drivers as an example, which is, are we going to continue to allow people to be non-full-time and then what's Uber's obligation to provide them health care benefits, appropriate salaries or wage uh, hourly wages and all those sorts of things. There's some tough choices in that. And as I watch organizations, let's just take the one that is prolific, which is third-party contracts. So we see that all over everywhere. And I think anybody managing those third-party contracts probably has a mixed set of reviews of how effectively those have gone. So there's a lot of decisions to be made about how we incorporate people, who we incorporate, what our means of or making them feel part of it, how we treat people. That's a lot to think about. It is a lot to think about. And, you know, it's interesting. We're, we're in the middle of the debates now on how do we classify workers. Mm-hmm. And in most of the world, the U.S. system is one that I'm most familiar with. You're either a full-time employee and you get a certain type of benefits and a certain tax consideration, or you're not. You're, mm-hmm. you're either on or off, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're off, if you're a contract worker or a gig worker or a freelance worker, basically you get almost no protections, mm-hmm. right? You get relatively few benefits. Now, one of the things that we've been experiencing around the world, certainly in the U.S., in the last year with COVID has been the response of governments, including the federal government, to provide benefits like unemployment insurance to people who were in this other category. Um, and I, my sense is that we need to do two things. One is we probably need to come up with a more robust set of labor classifications mm-hmm. that include everything from a full-time worker to a part-time worker to a gig worker to a crowd worker. And then we need to find ways, and Lewis Hyman and others have talked about this, to create benefit programs based on something like a micropayment system. If you work for an hour, you would get an hour worth of benefits. And it's not arguable. You work for an hour, you get a certain percentage. And then we can look at regulating minimum wages, minimum number of hours. I think the challenge is not to make everyone a full-time worker or a gig worker, but rather to come up with both labor classifications, sounds a little bit technical, how do we regulate all these different ways of working and ensure that there are appropriate benefits and safeguards for all of them? And that's the discussion I think we're going to see in the next couple of years very intensely. Um, I can imagine, I'm going to put on my uh, diversity hat for a moment, that there are a number of people in a number of diversity classic classifications 
who would benefit in their lives from different classifications, different alternatives, different pacing, different ways of working. Mm -hmm. But those are the ones that we often let fall through the cracks in the system most um, significantly. So I take your point that we have to expand our classification and then we have to figure out what's an equitable benefit system that can be appropriately allocated across the package. All right. Okay, new models of working. So let's turn to the third one, super teams. And I think these three are tightly tied, by the way. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by super teams and what are you seeing? So we we started talking about super jobs and super teams a couple of years ago. And and we were really inspired by by two ideas. One is the work of Tom Malone as a professor at MIT who, who wrote a book literally called Superminds. And he talks about the power of collective intelligence, the power of people working together in different ways, and the power of people and technology working together. When we talk about super jobs, we're basically uh, asking the question, let's think about the work that you do in your job. And how can we add technology to your job so that you can have superpowers, that we can augment what you do, not replace what you do. Um, And I'll come to replacement in a second, because that's the other key idea, which is that if we can automate part of what we do by adding technology either to our job or our team, we have what Eric Topol, who wrote a wonderful book called Deep Medicine, talks about. Um, If we automate part of our work, what we actually get is the gift of time. What we get potentially is the opportunity to do the deep work that humans can do. So when we talk about super jobs or super teams, what we're talking about is adding technology to the work that you do and adding technology and AI to the team that we do. But what's key about super jobs and super teams is setting up a situation where everybody can do more. We know that people want to do the most human, the most deep work that we can. We want our jobs to be as interesting and purposeful as we can. What's really interesting about a super team is redesigning and re-architecting the work so we are doing the most valuable things. Now, what's really interesting about this discussion, you asked at the beginning what we're seeing in the marketplace. Probably too much of the application of adding robots and AI to jobs and teams is focused today on automation and substitution plays. The value that we get both economically and socially from adding technology and putting AI on the team, a super team, a small amount of the value comes from automating and releasing that time. The real value comes from our ability to develop new products, new services, to create better experiences. We talk about cost and value and meaning and impact, right? When you're creating a super job or a super team, a big part of the focus is asking the question, how do we reimagine work so that it is more interesting and meaningful and has more impact? And I'll I'll add one data point here, if I I might. We do this annual human capital trend survey, as you've mentioned. Uh, We released a report uh, last December. We did the survey in September and October of 2020. So we were in the middle globally of the pandemic, a health crisis, an economic crisis, and a social crisis. 
And one of the questions we asked this 3,600 senior leaders around the world, 99 countries, was what are you going to, where do you see work transformation going in your organization, both pre-COVID and post-COVID? Pre-COVID, about 29% said that their priority was reimagining work, reimagining it for new outcomes, new impact, new meaning, new combinations of people and machines. Post-COVID, the same group of executives said, we expect that priority to go to 61%. Or put another way, six out of 10 senior global executives that we talked with are expecting that as they're pivoting from the COVID recovery to the post-COVID period, we optimistically call it the thrive period, um, <laughs> that they're going to focus on the reimagination and the re-architecting of work. And that puts super jobs and super teams right at the center of the discussion. Okay. All right. So can you give me an example of a super team or a super job where um, automation or robot or artificial intelligence has increased the human input to the job, the human thinking in the job? Absolutely. It, this is a hard question for me because I have a, I have a few right at the top yeah. of my mind. So I'll, I'll give a couple very quickly. One is, and I mentioned the ATM machine earlier, mm-hmm. and, and this is one of the, the most, I think, useful stories for us to think about. You know, in the late 1970s, we invented this machine called the automated teller machine, which basically does two fundamental things. It takes cash and checks, and it gives you cash, um, which used to be what we went to a bank for. Mm-hmm. When I was a child, and I went with my mom, who's passed on, to the bank, we would deposit money and we would give a little passbook and they would we'd hand it over the counter and they would take our money and they would put it in the account or we'd take money out and they would they had a mechanical device that actually put into our passbook how much money was left in the account. So then we invented this machine that basically did what retail bankers did. Mm-hmm. And a very interesting thing happened over the next 30 or 40 years. The number of bank branches around the world, and certainly in the U.S., doubled. The amount of labor it took to run a bank branch went down by 40%. So we, we needed fewer people in each branch, but we had many, many more branches around the country and around the world. And the work of every single retail banker in a branch changed from a bank teller which is what you used to do in a bank branch, to being part of a super team, which is the people that run a retail bank branch. And the job of everybody in that bank branch changed. So they're no longer, and I would use the word deliberately, mechanically handing out money and taking money. They're helping people advise on new financial products. They're helping people get mortgages. They're helping people um, access credit cards. They're dealing with um, uh, cyber issues. I, I had an issue a couple of years ago, and you know, when I wanted to resolve the issue, a check was whitewashed, um, stolen, and somebody changed the amount. Um, I wanted to talk to a person. I went to the bank branch. My bank branch teller was no longer a teller. She was an advisor for me for cyber issues. So, so that's an example that we're looking at. And the, the challenge that I think we have today is how do we take that approach? How do we add the technology to the team so we can provide more access to the service, make the work more interesting, and make the work more human? Right. Um, there's a similar example in this one, which is the development of automated loan applications. 
I'm sure you know this, but for everybody else, I think that capability of inputting data into a computer terminal, in effect, either on paper application that was scanned or directly into the computer terminal, and having the terminal spit back to you whether your loan had been approved or not approved, existed in about 1990. But we couldn't convince anybody that it was worth using because there was a sense of, can we really calculate the risk profile and I need to look in somebody's eyes and yada, 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 yada. All right, now today, we know that that is pretty much automated on the internet. That's how you get most, your mortgage loan, for example, starts that way. And it frees the manager, the bank manager, to do more services related to that home. So, you know, the, so again, there's another example of we take the mechanical checking that all the boxes were cleared and turn it into something else. Okay, before we take a break, I have to talk about our last one, mm-hmm. which is... Um, There's a lot of conversation about going back to the office, about who's going to have flexibility, about who's not going to have flexibility. And I personally believe, as I've watched all my clients, that people have the worst conceivable technological kit available to them for this last year to experiment with what we would do with this potential work from a different place. So I know that we've had a good experiment. But we have certainly done it, whether it was the right or wrong thing. Um, and there's been a lot of conversation about, you know, has it contributed or declined well-being? Has it improved or declined work? Are you working harder or not working harder? So when you speculate about this, what do you think the new norm is going to be? Well, it's it's been a very stressful time and a very... Um, entrepreneurial time as well, if we look at what's happened over the the last year. I I, I think we would agree. I I would describe it as a forced experiment. Um, The notion that we could do as much work as we have been doing remotely is is really remarkable. Um, I think the question of whether we're going to go back and stay at home is one way of asking the question. Another way of asking the question is, We've experienced over the last year that we have many more choices. This goes back to Lewis Hyman and employment models. Now we're talking about workplaces. We have a lot more choice about how and where we work than we ever did before. Right? It's been very stressful, particularly for caregivers, particularly women who are taking care of children, who are trying to teach their kids at the same time that they're trying to, to manage their, their work. So you know, imagine a world where... Our, our children actually go back to school, and we have the flexibility and the choice to work from home. I think that sounds pretty good well, it's, it's to a lot of the people that I talk with. I think where we are now is um, we're thinking about, and the, the way that we talk about it, um, and this was one of the reports we wrote last year. We wrote a report last year, actually, we put out in May of 2020, and we talked about how do you balance the return to work in the future of work, right? Because we're trying to do two things at the same time, right? 2021 and 2020, we're not a detour. It's not like we got off the way that we worked and now we're going to get back on the ramp and we're going to go back to the way that we were doing it before. As we get back on the ramp, as we return to work, we have a lot of choices as to how we, how we do it. Some people will decide that they want to spend the majority of their time in a workplace. Some will say that they don't. A lot of people are going to choose what we call, we're all calling these new hybrid solutions. We need to learn together how to manage and support people 
in these hybrid ways of working, right? That was the hard part of the experiment. The technology worked okay. Maybe it was a little bit clunky. The big shifts when we go into the future of work, including the future of workplaces, are the managerial changes and the cultural changes. And I know that's one of the places that we right. want to go that's in the right. discussion. That's right. That's a perfect point for a break, finally. So, Jeff, great summary of four kind of interrelated trends, I might argue. It's hard to talk about one without talking about the others that are going to impact not just where we work, but how we work, what our employment models are, how we engage with each other. So my guest today, guest today is Jeff Schwartz. The book, if you would like to read it, is called Workplace, Work Disrupted, I think is the correct title. And I should also say that Jeff is a principal at Deloitte Consulting and um, lead writer on a number of reports, including the Deloitte's Global Human Capital Trends Report, which I think Jeff was referencing. When we come back, I want to talk about implications. So what does this mean for managers? What does it mean for me as an individual employee and the skills I need to develop? We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. 
With me today is Jeff Schwartz. Jeff is a principal at Deloitte Consulting, the author of Work Disrupted, Opportunity, Resilience, and Growth in the Accelerated Future of Work. Fascinating book. I highly recommend it, as well as the author of a number of reports within Deloitte, as you've just heard Jeff saying. We've been talking about four trends, four interrelated trends. One is the human-machine interface, not just automation, but how do we begin to use machines to change the nature of the work that we do. We've been talking about the alternative employment models, not just full-time or part-time, but the many options that exist between that gig, freelance, crowd work, and who knows what other titles are going to be existing in the next year. We've talked about the rise of super teams and super jobs, which largely means that we're now going to interface machine and machine technology with a human and with the team in order to accelerate, give that team or that person superpowers. They can do more of what they weren't doing before. And then lastly, we've talked about the hybrid models that are arising of how and where people work given the technology experiment we've been on in the last year and the technology experiment I suspect we'll be on in the many years to come. Okay, so Jeff, now I want to turn and say implications. And let's start with talking about this as managers. So here I am as a manager of a team where I used to be able to largely look out and see those people. Maybe it was a global team and it was a different version of looking out and see, but there was a sense of where people were and what they were doing. And now it's a whole new world. How do I begin to think about my job as a manager? Well, this is a great question. And I think uh, one way to sort of uh, summarize this, sort of frame it, is as we were discussing in the last few minutes, if, if work and workforces and workplaces are being disrupted, leadership and management and culture probably should be disrupted as well. It would be hard to expect that if everything changed, we could continue to lead and manage in the same way. By the way, there are people that think that that is not a bad idea. Um, one, of the, one of my favorite quotes that I use to talk about the book is a, is a quote from Albert Einstein, um, who said that you can't use an old map to explore a new world. And I think that that's what we're learning as leaders and managers. That's really, the, in one way, the essence of what we're trying to explore and work disrupted, which is as these things change, what does it mean for us as leaders? And, and I'll, I'll summarize two points. Let me know if you want to go into them. One is um, we used to lead and manage by walking around. There was literally an expression called management by walking around, which was made popular and uh, I think in search of excellence many years ago um, when that book um, was written. But it's we can't walk around in the same way. Now, even when we were managing by walking around, we probably think we knew more about what people were doing and how they were doing than we actually did. One of the biggest shifts that we're seeing now is that the role of what we sometimes call middle managers and team leaders has really shifted and is changing quite a lot. Um, how do managers engage with their teams? How do we really check in with people to see how they're doing and what they need to do their most productive work? And, and one of the ways that I, I think about this, one of the ways I would encourage people to think about it is, it's a little bit like a from to model. Like how did we manage um, 20 years ago and how do we need to think about management going forward? Managing teams is much more than supervising them and picking the roster, 
which is a lot of what managers used to do, right? It's not, we're not just talent scouts. We're not just finding the people on the team. The role today of managers and team leaders is much more to be a player coach, to be on the field with the team, helping individual team members perform better and helping the team overall, which includes technology, as we said, um, perform better. And that's a different role. That requires a, a higher degree of, of interaction. We're trying to apply some ideas from Agile in terms of sort of a daily standup. How do we check in with people? And how do we evaluate not just their retrospective performance, but how do we as managers help people prospectively to perform better and to develop the future capabilities and skills that they need? I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see a major focus on the role of middle managers and team leaders right. as they become much more important, not as supervisors, but as people who are really fueling the development and the performance of what's happening. And we saw that the whole notion of you know what we call sort of the lift and shift, the idea that we could manage in the same way on Zoom or Microsoft Teams, the way that we were managing in the office, I think right. we've learned that, that that doesn't work, that there are some real changes that we're undergoing. Right. It's interesting because we've had, what, three, four decades of the decline of the role of middle management. And what you're advocating is, no, we're going to need middle managers more now than ever. But the job that they do is the team I'm not going to use the word captain, but it almost is like the team captain where there are, I like your words, a player coach. And obviously that's the sweet spot in my book and this notion that this is what the future of leadership looks like is I'm one part doing the job and I'm one part coaching people about the job. So that player coach mentality. I like the notion too that I stop thinking about retrospectively what have people done in our classic performance management world and think prospectively what do I need you be doing better, faster, differently in order to elevate the performance of the team. Um, that seems a pretty powerful concept and pretty fundamental shift. Okay. Great. So that was one point. Did you have a second point on management? Well, the, the second point is that one point was the role of managers and how they're changing. I think the other point is that there are a whole set of emerging, I'll call the management disciplines. And I, I talked earlier about the end of the beginning and the beginning of the middle of the future of work. And um, there are things that we've been exploring as managers for the last 10 or 20 years. Um, the role of behavioral economics would be a good example. The role of design thinking yep. is another example. The role of cultural anthropology and ethnography, which of course is the center of the way that we do user design. Um, the role of leaders, not as digital technicians, but as digital Sherpas, as people helping their team members and their customers use the technology to, to navigate um, uh, the technology. So I think we're seeing the emergence, and it's, it's very interesting, we're discussing this with both business leaders and government leaders and business schools around the world, what do we need to be teaching and developing leaders to do around mm -hmm. coaching, designing, behavioral architecture, um, 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 ethnography, um, um, integrating digital work, and also integrating social issues and social advocacy into the work we do. So it's, a, it's not only an interesting time to be a middle manager, it's an interesting time to think about what is management and what disciplines and skills do we need to develop in our managers? 
That's a really, I, well, and music to my ears, obviously, it's one that I think we need to pay an awful lot more attention to. But I like the framework that um, your job as a manager is much more coaching than it ever has been. And I like this notion of coaching prospectively, not retrospectively, because I think that's a really important quality. And I think it's what people are looking for and who they want to work with. And given all these models, people are going to have more choices about who they work for and with. So we better get this right. And there's a lot, you're right, around the behavioral economics, the behavioral architecture that we know is making a difference, just what we know about nudges, for example, Mm -hmm. and the uh, cultural anthropology and social issues, you know, all really important things, things we used to ignore so long as we could monitor and record and measure. And what we're saying is it's less monitor and record and measure and much more nurture, I think, is the theme I would pull from what you're saying. Well, let me me add, I, I think it's much more and- I, I don't think it's or. I think one of the challenges that we have, particularly as managers uh, today, is I don't think it's as simple as throwing out the old management candidate and coming in with a new management candidate. I don't think it's as fashionable as that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are some core things that we do as managers, set strategy, make decisions, um, focus on organizational culture. It, it's really about adding these perspectives to the way that um, that we manage. And it, the world is more dynamic and complicated and complex than it was before. Right. That's in part what's driving these changes. It's not that we have new ways of managing. We have new ways of managing because work is changing. We have right. new ways of managing because our expectations of economic and business value and its relationship to social values are clearly changing. And we can we can go there if you want as right. well. There's a lot to say about that one. I'm going to avoid going there because it would take the rest of the commentary that I have. Okay. we have time for. <laughs> um, so if you were advising somebody who's becoming a manager, who's early in their career as manager, even mid-career as a manager, what do you advise them they need to get really good at doing? Well, I think that there are, well, I give, I give people a couple of pieces of advice. Um, one is, and this is advice I gave to my daughters who are 26 and 29. Well, we can ask them offline whether they're listening to my advice or not. But part of the advice that I give uh, to people who are starting their careers in the middle of their careers or working as managers is to become really good at left and right brain thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, Daniel Pink wrote a book 15, 20 years ago called The Whole New Mind. Um, and, and I think what's important for managers today is to both be good at the technical side of the work that they do, but also um, the creative and the emotional and the social side of the work that we do. And the people that I think tend to have the most interesting careers and lives and successful careers and lives really are left and right brain. They really are able to move between those two worlds. And the other is simply... um, being really comfortable as a, as a lifelong learner and being really comfortable with ongoing reinvention. And, um, to, you know, one of the fundamental changes in work that we're all experiencing now is we have this amazing longevity dividend, right? Young workers today, people born in this century can expect in many parts of the world to live to be 100, Right. And you live to be 100. The average time in a job is three or four years. 
the half-life of a technical skill is five years or less, you can expect to have 12 or 14 jobs in multiple careers. So my advice to managers and my advice pretty much to everybody is prepare for a multi-chapter journey. And if you're a manager, it's not only about being left and right brain, it's being prepared to manage yourself and your teams through that process of ongoing reinvention, which is a little bit different than lifelong learning, right? right? It's the ability to really evolve as we lead and work. Some people are comfortable in that kind of reinvention. In fact, they find it exciting that I'm not going to be on this career track and do this exact thing for the rest of my life. I'm going to do this and there's something else. And that, that kind of change, if you will, is exciting to them. But some people are not as comfortable with the change. They like more stability, more predictability, more sense of I can plan where I'm going and what's coming ahead. And I don't want to paint either as right or wrong because both have advantages and disadvantages. So I can imagine people who embrace the change and are comfortable with change and like the change can go, okay, I can figure out how to do it. But what's your advice for people who are not as happy about change? They like that predictability a little bit more. Well, this, this is really the tough, among the toughest questions that we have right now. But I, I, I'd like to give two sides, two, two views, two answers to this question, right? The first is to somebody who's 15, 20, 25 years old, right? Um, we need to update our view of what a 21st century career is. Mm-hmm. Wherever you are in the world, if you are 15, 20, 25 years old, you are going to have what I call a long and winding career, <laughs> right? I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I tell some stories in the book about being a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal and, and um, trekking through the Himalaya mountains and meeting Sherpas. I think it's important to know what your career trajectory is going to look like. Mm-hmm. And the historical view is a career is once up the mountain and once down the mountain, right? You prepare, you get on the mountain, you go up, you go through a sort of set of linear um, progressions, a career ladder. And then 30 years after that, you basically get off that ladder and your career is over. I think if you're talking, if I'm talking to a 20 year old today, your journey is not up and down the mountain once. I'm thinking about my time trekking in the Himalayas. You're going to go up and down mountains six or seven times, right? You're going to cross five or six rivers. Half of them will have bridges. Half of them won't have bridges, right? You got to figure out how to cross those rivers without bridges. So are you going to step across the rocks? Are you going to get on a raft? I mean, these are the journeys that we go through. And I think it's helpful when we're starting our careers or in the middle of our careers to recognize that it's not once and done, that it really is a repetitive process. For people who are saying, you know, I like more predictability, most of us like predictability as well, right? But uh, I'm going to now talk about uh, some of the work that uh, John Hagel and John Seeley Brown, who used to run something called the Center for the Edge at Deloitte. Um, And their view, and I agree with it, is as young people and as children, Um, we're more comfortable with the notion that we are creators and doers and learners and entrepreneurs. Think about the lemonade stand, right? I mean, you know, I mean, we'll try all these different things. We unlearn some of these human capabilities through our lives. And I think we need to, to relearn them. And really importantly, we need to provide the job transition support 
not just social safety nets. We need, and I talk about this in my book, the notion of what does a job transition network look like, which is something that we've seen in countries in Europe, like Denmark and Sweden, who they have something called flex security, where the idea that people are going to change their jobs multiple times in their lives is the way that employment is set up, education is set up, and the safety net is set up as well. Excellent. Wow. Lots to think about there, Jeff. Um, And sadly, we're out of time in terms of talking about this one. I think that what's fascinating to me about this discussion is it's clear that we need to rethink both their jobs as managers and leaders, um, the skills that I need to be able to do that and do that well, to think about this player coach mentality, to think about the right and left brain or what I like to call the expertise track and the spanning track. Same kind of idea there that there are two halves and the two halves are not one and two, they're and. I'm doing both of them at the same time and that's the important skill. And plus, you know, that we have to prepare for a range of transitions as individuals and get comfortable with, I'm going to have to learn something I didn't know before. I'm going to have to pick up a technology that I didn't perhaps know or know I needed to. And we need to provide support services for those people to relearn. Okay, my last question before we go. For you personally, what takes you out of your comfort zone and what's your secret to success? So, well, I think what takes me out of my comfort zone is that very early on in my life, I did things that were out of my comfort zone, right? So I'll give, I'll give uh, two examples. Probably the most important example was in my life was my decision a year out of university to join the Peace Corps mm-hmm. and go to Nepal. Um, uh, when I went to Nepal in 1981, I'm really dating myself here. I had to look up where Nepal was <laughs> in the World Book Encyclopedia because yeah. I did know. I was well-educated. I graduated from Cornell University. I was a you know, pretty sharp guy, but I did not, could not tell you where it was on a map. Now, there was no internet in 1981. So I you know, was, went to my parents' house. I pulled up the encyclopedia, and I said, oh, it's a small country in the mountains between India and um, uh, in China. That, that looks um, interesting. So... To me, that was a, a very formative experience, right? Really going and getting off the beaten track. A couple of years later, I was in business school and graduate school in economics. I was working in par- on Park Avenue in corporate finance. Um, and so somewhere between that village in Nepal and that, that office in the trading floor in, on Park Avenue and, and 47th and 48th Street was the whole world. Um, and that has been very helpful to me. Right. That has helped me to be a bit of an explorer and really fed my um, uh, curiosity. So I'm a, a big advocate for both young people and older people to, to be explorers, because if you get used to being an explorer, I think it's a lot easier to do the kind of things that, we're, that are in front of Great. us right now. All right. Fabulous. Jeff, excellent show. Great to have you on today. My guest, Jeff Schwartz. The book is Work Disrupted, Opportunity, Resilience, Growth in the Accelerated Future of Work. As I have said, Jeff is a principal at Deloitte Consulting and the author of a number of reports on the human capital trends at Deloitte. So, Jeff, thank you again for being a guest. And I would say to our listeners, join us next week for more in how to get out of your comfort zone. And if you'd like to know how to apply these skills and others, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. 
Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.